Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Shahid Buttar. He's the Democratic socialist and lawyer who is trying to unseat Speaker Nancy Pelosi from the House seat that she has held since 1987. Now, to much of the rest of America, particularly among Republicans, Nancy Pelosi is the epitome of a San Francisco liberal. And many Democrats love her because of the way she stands up to President Trump. But as you will hear, Buttar is coming at Pelosi from her left. He doesn't think that she has delivered enough to working people in the coronavirus packages that she has negotiated so far. And he thinks she has enabled Trump ever since he took office. Now stick around until the end for a rare It's All Political treat because Shahid, who is an accomplished rapper, poet, and DJ, will bust a rhyme or two for us, and you will find out what word rhymes with Pelosi. And now, here is my conversation with Shahid Buttar. Shahid Buttar, from your home in San Francisco at the corner of Hayton Ashbury to mine in Oakland, at, at not nearly as sexy a uh, intersection, welcome, <laughs> welcome back to It's All Political. So good to be with you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so let's, um, uh, before we get started, I want to remind listeners who, who may not have heard you the last time you were on, or unfamiliar with your last congressional uh, campaign, uh, to sort of, uh, I'd love for, to hear you sort of retrace your, your immigration story, which is a, is a fantastic American story. You're an immigrant born in the uh, UK of Pakistani descent. Walk us through uh, from uh, your, that time, your, your parents, and how your family wound up in the town of Rosebud, Missouri, <laughs> to where you wind up at Stanford. Sure. I, I basically had an opportunity to escape rural Missouri and then the south side of Chicago to find my way to the Bay Area in 2000 to study and then teach law at Stanford. My parents came to the U.S. seeking freedom and opportunity. I grew up relating very viscerally to the inscription carved in stone at the base of the Statue of Liberty. I am, I was rather, you know, among the world's tired, poor, hungry masses yearning to breathe free. And I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity here. In Missouri, we were very warmly embraced by our neighbors and uh, part of the country where I fear, frankly, if we were to have had the same experience today, I don't know if we would, uh, rather, if we immigrated today, I don't know if we would have the same experience. Um, and it's an interesting thing to reflect upon because I, I witnessed our uh, place in society as immigrants shift very dramatically during my adult years. It was while I was in law school at Stanford that uh, the war on terror began and responded to uh, the catastrophic terror attacks uh, in 2001. And they very dramatically transformed my own racial identity, more or less overnight. Um, by the time I got into Stanford, there was I spent 10 years in Chicago going to school at night. I got my undergrad degree uh, mostly at night school while working for a series of Wall Street banks in Chicago in the 90s. So I had a chance to see behind the curtain some of the precursors of the 2008 financial crisis. And I came to law school at Stanford, uh, focused particularly on studying antitrust law because I had seen some of the problems with corporate consolidation uh, in my work before coming. And it was while I was at Stanford studying antitrust law so I could, you know, I wanted to work for the government and bust big businesses and got that job actually my first uh, year. The Justice Department uh, offered me a position in the antitrust section. And George Bush had shut that section down. It's never been seen from since. 
And uh, while I was there, a constitutional crisis erupted, which remains unresolved. And frankly, that's been the set of events to which my career has largely responded, is the constitutional crisis relating to the mass surveillance regime, uh, detention without trial, torture with impunity. Uh, you know, the erosion of human rights over the last 20 years has been the central object of my professional focus. And I think of that as also very tied to my immigrant experience, because one reason I'm very concerned about liberty in America is that it's what brought my family halfway around the world to be here. I, I don't mm-hmm. treat it as an abstract thing that I take for granted. I see it very much as a precious, fragile thing that we are all charged to defend. And I see our policymakers failing that responsibility miserably. That's why I'm running to represent San Francisco and Washington. Well, we, we spoke in March, I believe, uh, and it was early April for a story in the Chronicle. You said that Nancy Pelosi, who is your opponent, the House Speaker, she said she didn't get enough for working people in the $2 trillion stimulus package that, that passed around that time. Since then, there have been other stimulus packages. And, and uh, in the last uh, 12, 24 hours before we're talking here, before we're recording this, uh, she's just proposed a $3 trillion package uh, that has uh, things in it like $10 billion for food stamps, a uh, billion dollars for low-income uh, moms who lost their jobs, and, and other things that were not in the <laughs> uh, previous uh, uh, stimulus packages. What do you think of uh, this latest one, which uh, many people say has uh, pretty much zero chance of passing because the Republicans are like, no, this is this is a liberal wish list. We, we're not going to, this isn't going anywhere in the Senate. What right. are your thoughts on it, though, but of what she's come up with? You know, the, the coronavirus stimulus packages that have come out of Congress with Nancy Pelosi's support have been entirely inadequate to meet the needs of the American people. They've also been problematically skewed to serve corporate interests. And that's where I'd particularly uh, you know, focus. I wouldn't even, they were procedurally responses to coronavirus, but it's more accurate to describe these as opportunistic, uh, redistributive attempts to take advantage of the pandemic as a pretext to redistribute wealth up to the 1% and the 0.1% and corporations particularly. Uh, The same uh, act, the CARES Act, that did thankfully include some direct payments to some Americans, limited to $1,200 one-time payments. And I I do want to pause and just acknowledge that as progress relative to the 2008 bank bailout where there was no direct payments to individuals. So some legitimate, worthwhile uh, progress to cite. In spite of that, the bill included just as much, half a trillion dollars, in what amounted to a corporate slush fund for a criminal president to hand out to his cronies without any functional congressional oversight. Uh, You know, even more problematically, at the same time that Congress appropriated some money for hospitals, which you would expect in a coronavirus stimulus response bill, that's the first thing we should be doing, Congress allocated more money to tax breaks for millionaires, 43,000 of whom received tax cuts averaging $1.6 million each, while working class Americans, some of us, are getting $1,200 one-time payments. And the juxtaposition between tax cuts for millionaires, perversely in the middle of a global public health crisis and an economic collapse, and bailouts for corporations for a president with no respect for the rule of law to dole out as he sees fit, and probably to serve his own personal at least political, if not financial interests, just to you know, locate how corrupt the president is. Uh, you know, these are examples of <clears throat> effectively abdication and the working class Americans need voices. And we are not generally represented in Congress. And you can see that in the acts that come out of the body. 
at the very least responding to this crisis, we should have emergency universal health care. There's no reason under the sun that we would treat healthcare as an individuated commodity transaction. It's foolish. It just flies in the face of common sense. This is a contagious pandemic, which means that all of us share an interest in making sure that everybody can get to a doctor and that everybody can get tested, that everybody can get care, and that everybody can get medicine. But that's not the commitment we have as a society. We have chosen instead to privilege, well, I should say, as a policymaker, Speaker Pelosi has chosen instead to support the interests of pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies instead of her constituents and patients. And that's a completely disqualifying choice at any time. In the middle of a pandemic, it is frankly preposterous. I'm, you know, my outrage wears thin, if only because it is unfortunately uh, so consistent. But I, I do take it as more than unfortunate. You know, I, I do think of it as disqualifying to see policymakers race to find funds and opportunities to support and serve corporations. Pelosi even wants to include corporate lobbyists in the next bailout, which is to say the very same lawyers in Washington working for the pharmaceutical and health insurance companies that you know, she serves, those same lawyers, they want to bail out with taxpayer funds and all their work consists of is denying human rights to the rest of us. It's wait, 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 what are you speaking of there when you say she wants to bail out lobbyists? So uh, journalist Matt Stollard uh, particularly uh, released yesterday text of the latest proposal and it relates, concretely it relates to <clears throat> replacing a reference to 501c3 organizations, which are nonprofit organizations specifically uh, focused on educational missions. You know, I right. used to work for several 501c3 organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for instance. Um, you know, many nonprofits that people are familiar with in the advocacy and educational arena are 501c3 groups. The law proposes to change that to 501c groups, which in particularly include 501c6 groups. Those are trade associations like pharma. <clears throat> pharma is a trade association of pharmaceutical companies, which hires, you know, they spend uh, at least tens, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars a year on hiring lawyers to lobby Congress. This is part of the problem with money in politics. And just to disaggregate this, you know, most people focus when they talk about money in politics as a problem on the Citizens United decision. And my work as a lawyer in Washington, when I first finished law school at Stanford, I went to DC and worked for a San Francisco law firm, Heller, Ehrman, White, and McCall, if it no longer exists. Uh, but at the time, it was uh, you know, 700 lawyers around the country. And my very first case was representing two members of the House, uh, Shays and Meehan, who had been the House co-sponsors of the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2003. This was the last time Congress tried to take corporate money out of politics. And we won our case before the D.C. Circuit defending attempts to limit the influence of money in politics. And then the Citizens United decision four years later laid waste to that entire phase of my career and invited open corruption, particularly in the campaign finance arena. What we're talking about here with corporate lobbyists is a subsequent separate compounding problem. If there's a problem with how we finance campaigns, after people get seated, and in some of my allies in Congress and the squad have talked about this dynamic, once you're seated in Congress, you have a limited staff, which can you know, help you conduct legislative analysis, um, you have access to some committees conceivably if you get seated on them, and those committee staff can help you conceivably draft constructive legislation, proactive legislation. Most of the legislation that Congress suggests or considers is drafted by corporate lobbyists who are paid by some corporation and then brought to the Hill 
by clever lawyers who say, hey, we want you to do X, Y, Z. Are you concerned about this and this? Here's a bill. It's ready for you to run with. And there's not a lot of people doing that on the other side for the public interest. And I see in the dynamic of corporate corporate lobbying as a phenomenon is problematic inherently. The idea that then we would allocate taxpayer funds to bailing them out in an economic crisis as if they performed some kind of public function, which they absolutely do not. I mean, corporate lobbyists are kind of like weapons manufacturers or fossil fuel extraction companies to the extent that they inherently profit by preying on the public. There's absolutely no reason to bail out industries that profit from public predation. And it astounds me that we even need to have this conversation, but the Speaker of the House apparently is more committed to corporate lobbyists than she is to her constituents. And and maybe just to make that really sharp, and then I'll uh, do uh, one of your your questions, but the Ilhan Omer's proposal to cancel rents and mortgages, I see very stark the difference between a member of Congress who's willing to stand with renters as she is, and a wealthy landlord who makes a million dollars a year from rent, who guards her interests in Congress, abandoned renters in San Francisco entirely to a predatory housing market, and is using the pandemic as a pretext to even more fleece the public and serve corporations. I I see that as entirely disqualified. We'll have more of my conversation with Shahid Buttar after a short break. And now, here's more of my conversation with Shahid Buttar. One thing you've proposed, now, if if you were to win, you would be, of course, a junior member of of, uh, the House and uh, wanted to see some of the things that you might want to include in this. You've mentioned several of them so far, emergency uh, Healthcare, uh, universal healthcare. The other day, I want to make sure that you to get a little more background. On this you tweeted that you wanted a twenty-five dollar an hour minimum wage. Now, ask any activist that we both know. It was a, it was a very difficult. Took years and years and years to get up to fifteen, and and <laughs> most states don't have that yet. And Joe Biden just came around to that. I think about three weeks ago. Um, what? How would you get to twenty five? What would your? Uh, who would pay for that? And how long would that take? Right. Who would pay for that? Are private employers. And you know, just to be clear, the historical and empirical data suggests that the minimum wage threshold, in real dollar terms, has fallen through the floor. It's remained static for decades, as productivity has increased, as corporate profits have increased, wages have not. They've they've declined in real terms. Uh, especially when you consider inflation adjustments. All that is to say is that we're long overdue to adjust the federal minimum wage. 15, and I would love to see it at least get to 15 an hour. That would be a substantial increase over where it is now. But the point here is that if wages had kept pace with productivity growth, as economists pretend that they do, uh, you know, with contrary to uh, empirical facts, but if, if wages did keep pace with productivity growth, growth, the minimum wage would be about $22 an hour. So 25 is basically an adjustment to try to capture the lost wages that the market has stolen from working class Americans over the last generation. Um, you know, when we talk about who pays for it, that's a concern that often comes up. You know, people raise it in Medicare for all. When we talk about universal health care, people raise it when we talk about climate justice and the Green New Deal. And the fact of the matter is that we, you know, we have a sovereign uh, state which prints money. And it's not like going to the grocery store and putting something on your credit card. The government prints money. This is what we do with weapons manufacturing. You know, it's not as if we actually, uh, you know, deliver suitcases of cash to Lockheed Martin. We, we create the money as a state because that's what the state does. 
and we can create money and allocate to any number of purposes. At the moment, we only do that mostly for banks uh, with occasional, you know, as we were talking about with the $1,200 one-time payments, occasional nods to the needs of uh, working class Americans. But, but generally, you know, this sort of function of fiscal stimulus for, for us in the United States has been a direct pipeline to bail out Wall Street at, at every opportunity. There's a particular point to raise here, having bailed out Wall Street in 2008 and having done it again right now in the CARES Act, it would make sense as we think about who is to bear the cost of the pandemic. And I'm thinking less here about the minimum wage and more about rents and mortgages. It would make sense that the entities to bear the cost of the pandemic would be the ones, A, most situated to bear it, B, that we've already bailed out, and C, that we've demonstrated our propensity to repeatedly bail out, and those are the banks. They would be the responsible entities to bear the costs of the pandemic, because every time banks fail, we just bail them out anyway. So why wouldn't we have them responsible for rents and mortgage payments that instead, Speaker Pelosi wants working families and people between jobs, of whom there are millions at the moment. We have an unprecedented unemployment crisis in the country. What and do you, the what response, do you think of Pramila Jayapal's uh, uh, Paycheck uh, Guarantee Act? Would, uh, have you been following that? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Pramila Jayapal is one of the leaders in Congress who demonstrates a very different vision for policy than Speaker Pelosi. And one of the reasons I'm running is precisely to empower Pramila Jayapal and the squad. You know, I'm very excited by a number of the proposals that have come out of the squad. You know, Pramila's, uh, uh, that, that bill, Ilhan Omar's cancel the rent proposal, uh, you know, AOC has been very um, outspoken about the uh, distributive implications of the CARES Act stimulus packages. I see Bernie Sanders, for instance, in that same uh, CARES Act went to the mat and, and successfully achieved the historic expansion of unemployment insurance with massive structural implications for labor rights. You know, I hear people when he was running for president occasionally say, you know, what has Bernie Sanders gotten done? A lot is the short answer there. And the expansion of unemployment insurance is historically a huge deal. Yeah. I don't think that we appreciate it at the moment, but historians will reflect upon it as a major inflection point in worker rights in the United States. So I wanted to, before I want to talk about uh, surveillance, but you mentioned the squad a couple of different times and you, you've seen a hashtag you have going with the, when you tweet out stuff. So expand the squad. <clears throat> and for folks who are not familiar with the squad, this is a reference to the first term House members, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, uh, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, Ayanna Presley, Massachusetts, uh, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. But none of these folks have endorsed you. Why do you think they have? Well, they have to work on Capitol Hill. And, you know, Speaker Pelosi runs Capitol Hill. And it's the same reason that Bernie hasn't endorsed me. I, I have a substantive platform that aligns with all of those figures. Right. Uh, and each of those figures have jobs to do. I, I'm more interested, frankly, in their uh, ability to do their jobs than I am in their endorsements. Each of them had to carve their own path to Washington. And I'm happy to do the same. I would say it speaks, your question speaks to the, and I encounter this frequently, the very real chilling effect that the presence of the speaker has on any democratic challenge. You know, the number of people I've spoken to who, you know, I'm thinking of one in particular, a member of a state legislature who said to me, um, I love you. I love what you stand for. I want you to be in Congress, but I dare not support you or she, Speaker Pelosi, will end my career. You know, she, she wow. maintains her position through a combination of intimidation of political rivals and, you know, sort of patronage to people who curry her favor. You know, she has local lieutenants, you know, like I can think of former members of the board of supervisor who carry water for her locally 
undermining their own stated principles by supporting her tenure in office because you know they dare not cross her as the head of the party. Um, <clears throat> there's a a similar dynamic here that relates. You know, if, if there's carrots and there's sticks, there's also this this very profound chilling effect for um, anyone either in the party. <clears throat> this is or or and this is an important point. Anyone with aspirations in the party. You might describe the speaker's influence in this respect as profoundly anti-democratic with a small d, mm -hmm. and frankly anti-democratic with a big d because it undermines the party's interests and effectively, like her substantive legislation, bends the Democratic Party in the service of the GOP. That's the essential critique, is that with Pelosi running the, D running the Democratic Party, she basically runs it like the 90s Republican Party. And you know, we the people of the United States want a labor party not a second corporate party, but that's all she's able to deliver. You know, she went to Congress in the Reagan years and very much remains molded and limited by the politics of that era, which obviously were long ago. We're talking about yeah. 30 years ago. And I don't think that the future needs to be changed to the past. And the, um, and one other question before we get into surveillance, because I, I, I know you have a lot to say on this. Uh, one thing, speaking of uh, uh, power and, and influence and money, um, you're now taking a salary from your campaign fund, about $2,000 a week, which is totally legal for House candidates to do, House candidates to do. It's not legal for House members to do. Speaker well, House Pelosi, members get paid much more than that. Yeah, yes, yes, they do. And yes. Speaker Pelosi, of course, one of, as you alluded to, one of the wealthiest members of Congress would need to. That says a lot. Could you afford it to run for the House if you didn't, if you didn't do that? Oh, absolutely not. I'd be on the street. You know, I, I'm not a wealthy person. Right. I, I worked for nonprofits. And, and yeah, the salary that I draw from the campaign is, as the law requires, equivalent to my nonprofit salary before I ran. So, right. uh, you know, and, and it is interesting to see uh, some people grow concerned about that. If, if we didn't allow that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Working class candidates like me could not conceivably run. And it is just particularly interesting. You know, House members make about twice what I make from my campaign. And Nancy Pelosi in particular is an oligarch. I mean, we're talking about somebody who's worth so much money that she doesn't confront the struggles that the rest of us do. And it's interesting to think about representatives as people who might either share our struggles or people who don't. You know, either of Nancy Pelosi's refrigerators is worth more than my net worth. <laughs> the, the refrigerators that were featured on the, the late night television recently. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, let's her, let's talk about the uh, the the uh, surveillance uh, votes that sure. are coming up this week, which I know this is your sweet spot, uh, one of your sweet spots. As you alluded to, you for many years you worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, one of the nation's uh, leading uh, digital civil liberties groups. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's located here in San Francisco. This week, the Senate's going to vote uh, to extend the provisions of the uh, FISA Act and uh, the, the Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act, and that are set to expire. What are your concerns about this, and why should we be concerned about this? This this was a, a rare a rare bipartisan moment for the House outside of the um, uh, the, cor the coronavirus relief packages. They gave a green light to, to extending these surveillance provisions. Uh, the Senate is likely to do the same. There's a couple of holdouts there. Uh, Republicans are the holdouts there, Rand Paul and Mike Lee, liber libertarian types. What are your concerns about this? A few areas demonstrate the corruption of Congress better than the metastasis of mass surveillance. And there's a history here that's worth considering. There's a constitutional dimension that's worth considering. There's a corporate dimension worth considering. And then there's an electoral one. Historically, a lot of people forget that surveillance in the United States 
has always been presented as a security measure, and it has always been politicized. Going back a hundred years to the very foundations of the FBI, I'm thinking of the Palmer raids. In the, this is rounding up labor union activists, calling it national security, just like later the FBI, in its own words, neutralized the civil rights movement, the movement to bring uh, peace to the war in Vietnam, uh, the movement for equal rights for women, Puerto Rican independence activists, Native American activists, all neutralized by the FBI in secret. And you know, this is a pattern in the United States uh, that unfortunately never ended, even in the 80s after the COINTELPRO investigations. Uh, under the Reagan administration, this, in U.S. national security agencies were infiltrating domestic groups operating in solidarity with Latin American communities that were being subjected to human rights abuses due to dictators that our own military industrial complex, namely you know, the CIA, had put in place. Uh, incidentally, that might have happened three times in the last year alone in Bolivia, Venezuela, and Brazil, or at least four times if you count each of the coup attempts in Venezuela, in neither of which have been successful yet, uh, which is just to say this, this pattern of national security agencies running amok to pursue their own agendas that undermine the national security of the United States and we the people of it is reflected also in this domestic mass surveillance apparatus. So the Patriot Act was passed <clears throat> nearly 20 years ago now. There has never in 20 years been a transparent public debate about it. It's interesting that the electoral dimension here, the analog is that Nancy Pelosi hasn't shown up for a debate to defend her record in public in 30 years, right? We're talking about generational long absences of democratic process. <clears throat> and so what happened with the Patriot Act finally about two months ago, largely because of the pandemic, because Speaker Pelosi had taken the house into recess and refused to reconvene the body, several of these provisions of the Patriot Act actually expired for the first time in 20 years. And I want to be clear, it's not extending these powers. Speaker Pelosi wants to resuscitate them. She wants to revive them having already expired. And I want to, so many parts of this just amaze me that anybody falls for this ruse. We justify mass surveillance on the pretext of national security, yes? There is a real national security event happening at the moment. Probably the most profound national security threat our nation has ever faced. And you can't fight it with surveillance. You can't fight it with a jet fighter. You can't fight it with a fancy weapon. You can't fight it with a military industrial complex. It's called right. a pandemic. So, so, so tell us what, what are you concerned about, about what's coming before the Senate this week? Well, this is, these are authoritarian powers. You know, the, <clears throat> the revival of the Patriot Act powers that previously expired would give our criminal president the potential opportunity to monitor his political enemies. And that's exactly how we should look at these tools as potential enablers for both authoritarianism and corruption. Now, <clears throat> I often say that everything this criminal president does is Nancy Pelosi's fault because he should not be in office and he would not be in office if she were not there to show up for impeachment like a boxer throwing a fight. And it is the corruption of this president that could have brought him down. It is the corruption of this president that the surveillance act, uh, that the surveillance powers could insulate. And it is the corruption of this president, unfortunately, that extends in a bipartisan way, and I dare say implicates the speaker. Uh, and I'm not going to say that she is corrupt, but there is an institutional corruption of which she is absolutely, unfortunately, a part. And that's one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress, because we, the people, can't continue to be fleeced like this. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the upward redistribution, the authoritarian power grab, not just in surveillance, but look at this through the lens of 
police militarization or torture with impunity, all of these things Pelosi has been demonstrably complicit in. She was part of the continuing cover-up over CIA torture going back to the last time she was the Speaker of the House under the Bush administration. She has been a consistent enabler of executive secrecy. There's another story you know, in a line here. One of the reasons we're concerned about mass surveillance is its secrecy. I would be less concerned if it were actually meaningfully transparent and subject to checks and balances, but it's not. And <clears throat> she has always been an active agent of enforcing executive secrecy in Congress. And you know, that's not corrupt, and it's certainly not traitorous to the nation, but it is traitorous to the body, right? The, the, the constitutional design envisions each of the branches having adversarial relationships to each other. But Speaker Pelosi is a head of Congress who serves the executive branch. I mean, she, she disempowers Congress by denying staff with security clearance, for instance, to House members, or uh, by limiting who has access to um, intelligence information in the committee apparatus. There's a whole bunch of ways in which the House Intelligence Committee is basically walled off from the rest of Congress. And frankly, sleep at the switch. And, and the powers that Pelosi <clears throat> has already moved back through the House cannot be justified. They're, they're objects of institutional corruption exposed by Edward Snowden. Some people are alarmed. I hope that we don't have the occasion to discover how dangerous they can be because it is precisely under the governance of a criminal president that these powers could be their most destructive to freedom of conscience and to democracy in the United States. Um, uh, one of your many talents uh, is uh, you are an artist of sorts. Uh, I mean, when I say of sorts, I mean, that's not your full-time job, but you have been uh, a rapper. Uh, you, you, you have done, uh, you've performed uh, both uh, publicly, you've done it uh, for campaign events and such. And uh, I understand you may have something, a little something uh, for us to, to close our conversation today. Yeah, happy to. I, yeah, I am an artist. I <clears throat> DJ, for instance, I have a monthly at a club in the Castro. And I was a, an MC and a poet long before I went to law school. And it has been an opportunity and an avenue for me to you know, share my concerns. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would invite San Franciscans to come together. We can together achieve whatever we desire. We can fly higher. We can climb any spire, house any choir. We can throw out of office any powerful liar, put out any conflagration of fire burning in the heart of every nation. Dire consequences if we don't act soon. The deadline was yesterday afternoon. Rest easy, y'all. There's no spoon, but the planet will force a reckoning soon. And if, like me, you want to see our society avert a climate catastrophe, replace Nancy Pelosi with me. My name's Shahid Buttar. So good to be with you, Joe. <laughs> I, I, I've never thought about the uh, rhyme between Pelosi and catastrophe. That was very impressive. It's unfortunately um, fitting. <laughs> yes. uh, Shahid Buttar, thanks for coming back to It's All Political. It's always great to hear from you. Good to be with you, brother. Okay, take it easy. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are healthy and safe. I'd like to thank Shahid for joining us today. I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing today's episode. And remember, no matter what you can rhyme with Pelosi, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.